Trek. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we've got a new concept today that I think is going to be both a lot of fun and really useful. So my colleague, Dr. Jillian Isaac, and I are going to do a mini-series within ACRAC that we're going to call Keywords. So what we're going to do is take the American Board of Anesthesiology keywords, which are available on their website, all the keywords that they expect trainees to know about, and we are going to do high-yield, short little descriptions of what you most need to know. Now, I want to say a couple of really important things. This is not going to be exhaustive, so we won't go into every little detail about every one of these words. We are just going to try to give you a few minutes of what is we think is most high yield for your studying. So if you want to delve more in depth, you absolutely can. But if you want to know how you can just study this term for your upcoming exams, we're going to give you what we think. Now, we could be wrong, but we're going to say what we think are the most high-yield few little facts to know about that. And what we'll do is, if you like this, let us know, because if we get a lot of positive feedback, then we will come back and periodically do more of these, and each time we'll hit a couple of keywords. It'll just be a few minutes each, and we'll see if we can give you some really high-yield studying from that. So, Jillian, I'm excited to do this with you. Thanks for coming back on the show. Thank you. So... I pulled up the ABA keyword outline, and we are going to start with the very first one, which is basic sciences, anatomy, the neck, and the cricothyroid membrane. So really, we're going to focus on the cricothyroid membrane. So when I'm helping my residents prepare for a standardized test, such as the ITE or the basic exam, one thing I do is I comb through question books, question banks, released ITE questions to get an idea of how they're testing these subjects and to get an idea of what I call high yield. So not what's going to help you be the best intraoperative anesthesiologist, but what's going to really help you be successful on these examinations. So uh, for the cricothyroid membrane, this topic was tested as airway innervation in 2008, 2009, 2017, as laryngeal innervation in 2011, 2014, and 2017, as neck anatomy in 2014, 2015, and 2018. So So it's come up a lot. It's come up a lot. In and of itself, it might not be a question, but it is if, when you look at questions, it is a good distractor because everyone's like, oh, I remember cricothyroid. Maybe that's it, right? right. Uh, so you do see it as an answer choice coming up. Uh, so just two things really quickly. I want everyone to know that I get all my information from Barish, so I'm not making this up. It's not freestyle. I do go through Barish and pull out what I think are the high-yield points. And then I use a website called Anesthesia Hub, which has old released ITE exams. Uh, it's a database of eight years' worth of old exams to get some of the questions. So if you want to use my resources, that's where I'm going to. Great. All right. So I'm going to put Jed on the spot here. Uh-uh. Let's see how much he remembers. Uh, so the cricothyroid membrane, It. I'm Going to give some information and then ask Jed a few questions. So it provides coverage to the cricothyroid space. In adults, it's nine millimeters in height, which I think is funny. They couldn't round up to a centimeter, but nine millimeters in height and three centimeters wide. It's in the anterior neck between the thyroid cartilage, and the thyroid cartilage is superior to it, and the cricoid cartilage is inferior. Uh, If you're putting a needle... Through it, you're going to hit the skin and then a yellow elastic tissue and a thin fascial layer, which make up the membrane itself, and then the laryngeal mucosa, and then you'll actually be into the airway. So, Jed, if you were doing an awake fiber optic intubation and you wanted to uh, block the recurrent laryngeal nerve, uh, what would you do? 
So uh, there's probably more than one way to do this, yes. but I think the most effective way and what I would do is a transtracheal block. So uh, I would yeah. inject lidocaine. <laughs> he read the book. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I would inject lidocaine through that cricothyroid ligament. Right. So the recurrent laryngeal nerve provides sensory innervation of the vocal folds and the trachea. And one of the best ways to do it is transtracheal injection of local anesthetic. I did a chunk of my residency at Columbia, and one of the reasons they had us doing it is if you ever got into a position where you had to do jet ventilation, you've at least put a needle through it before, so you've had that practice of popping through the membrane, so I thought that was good. Uh, You can do an awake fiber optic and use a port to squirt lidocaine past the cords for another way of doing the block, but I do like the transtracheal approach. So when you're popping through, when you're doing transtracheal, that's the cricothyroid membrane. Um, You can also, in the difficult airway algorithm, it's what you're going to use to do a retrograde wire intubation, which have you, what's your N for retrograde? My N in in living humans is zero. (laughs) I have done them on mannequins and uh, maybe even a cadaver. Yeah, so my N is actually two, so a little higher than yours. Both have been in significantly bleeding, trauma, airways where you just couldn't see anything. The fiber optic isn't going to work. Your direct laryngoscopy isn't going to work because all you're seeing is blood. So I've done it twice, and that's the cricothyroid membrane that you're popping through there. There are synonyms for uh, cricothyroidotomy, which is also cricothyroidotomy and a mini tracheostomy. So I do think it's really confusing because we kind of say these words – and they all mean the same thing. And so it took me a while to put that all together that, oh, they all mean the same thing. Uh, And there are some contraindications if you are going to do a transtracheal injection. Do you know what some of those might be? So I would imagine infection over the uh, site, uh, tumor. Not one embarrassed, but we'll take it. (laughs) If you had, and I have actually seen this, where a patient may have a, a large goiter or a large tumor overlying the site, so inability to access the site. Um, obviously would be a contraindication. Um, you would be a good oral board taker. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully. I think I passed the first time around. I'm sure there are others. What What do you have on your list? Uh, so according to Barish, they're actually neonates, kids less than six. And just as an aside, that's a big question that's asked on the test is difference in the pediatric and the adult airway. That comes up year after year after year. So obviously there are differences. So kids under the age of six, it's a contraindication. And then laryngeal fractures, which are rare. You really only see it in strangulation, either... Well, we'll just leave it at that. You can (laughs) use your imagination. But that's pretty rare, those. Uh, And then the ABA talks about uh, percutaneous transtracheal jet ventilation. So in the difficult airway algorithm, if you get into a situation where you cannot mass ventilate and you cannot intubate, then this is down there on the difficult airway algorithm in doing a kind of a transtracheal approach and doing a jet ventilation, which my N is actually zero in any capacity, and I'm hoping I never have to use that, but it is down there on the difficult airway algorithm in like a life-saving scenario, and that would be the cricothyroid membrane. Yep. So a uh, couple of th- – would, the only thing I would add is that um, I actually um, – in the podcast I did with uh, Dr. Mark on the difficult airway response team here, we talked a little about how uh, the other thing that I was taught, which has now gone kind of out the door, was this idea of using that cricothyroid membrane to do a needle, a Seldinger technique, cric- cricothyroidomy, where you would put a needle in, then a wire, then a, a dilator, and then your trach. 
And that's really been the, the movement, uh, both in emergency medicine and in anesthesia, is much more toward doing an open approach with a scalpel and a bougie. And so uh, that still is going to go through that same membrane, but a little yep. different technique, at least than what I was taught as a resident. So I think that's one important thing. And then the other is to remember that if you're doing any of these techniques, jet ventilation through the cricothyroid membrane, uh, transtracheal wire, or retrograde wire, you do want to also, in the back of your head, be preparing for a surgical airway, right, in case these things right. don't work. Right, right. Just to rein it in, those are all really great thoughts for the oral board. I don't think you're going to have that granularity on the written board. The written board can't be vague, right. and it can't be open to discussion. It has to be a very specific answer. So I did yep. pull a few questions that we can go through and how you might see this tested. Sure. And again, I think it is you see it very frequently as a distractor answer. And as someone who's written test questions, a distractor answer, it's meant to be just that. It's meant to pull you away from the real answer. And I think in this scenario, it's like, oh, cricothyroid. Yeah. I remember that. I don't oh. really remember that. That's got to be the answer, right? So, so let's see them. Right. Let's do it. So the first one is, which of the following statements concerning the superior laryngeal nerve is true? So A, it provides sensory innervation to the subglottic surface of the vocal cord. B, it provides sensory innervation to the inferior surface of the epiglottis. C, it is a branch of the glossopharyngeal nerve. D, it is blocked by injection of anesthetic near the lateral portion of the cricothyroid membrane. E, it is the most commonly injured nerve during thyroid surgery. All right. So their cricothyroid membrane came up. Yes, it did come up, and that's really how you're going to see it a lot is as that distractor answer. So we're talking about the superior laryngeal nerve. Uh, so I'm going to start with E. The most commonly injured nerve during thyroid surgery is actually the recurrent laryngeal mm -hmm. and more commonly on the left than on the right because it has a more circuitous route to take. Right. So that's not true. Uh, it is blocked by injection of anesthetic near the lateral portion of the cricothyroid membrane. So we talked about going through the center of the right. cricothyroid membrane. And I think the confusing part here is when you're doing uh, – the block is actually the hyoid bone, right? So right. people are like, oh, there is a bone, right? It's to the side. So that's right. actually right. – as a test writer, that's a brilliantly written question right there. That's a right great there. distractor. And actually, <laughs> I should say that when I said the center of the cricothyroid membrane, that was for the recurrent laryngeal nerve. Right. So the superior right. laryngeal nerve, as you said, is actually not going through the cricothyroid membrane. It's to the side of the hyoid bone. Right. It is a branch of the glossopharyngeal nerve. It's not. It's a branch of the vagus nerve. Right. Uh, and then I'm going to go to A because obviously now the correct answer is B. But A, it provides sensory innervation to the subglottic surface of the vocal cord. It does not. It's inferior. So it uh, provides sensory innervation to the inferior surface of the epiglottis. Right. So that's a, a great use of how – a great example of how you're going to see cricothyroid membrane on a testing scenario. That's great. That's super useful. And the thing I love about that, I just want to point out what you did there, Jillian, is that you went through – really carefully through and justified each incorrect response and why it was incorrect. And for folks out there who are doing a lot of test-taking questions on online question banks as a way to study, I can't urge you enough, you have to do that. Every, you should be able, when you do a question, to explain why every wrong answer was wrong. And if you can't, you have to figure it out. So that's how you're going to get the knowledge you need from these questions. Right. So here's another example of how you might see this. So following induction of general anesthesia, mass ventilation, and the initial attempt at intubation is unsuccessful. So I'm interpreting this as you induce general anesthesia, you mass ventilate, but you were unsuccessful at your initial intubation. Which of the following procedures is most appropriate? Now, I tell my residents in preparing for any standardized exam, when you read a question stem, the best thing to do next is to actually block off the answers and in your head try to answer the question. So I'm going to actually have Jed, without looking at the answers, he's not seeing this right now, tell me what he would do in this scenario. 
So I've so, tried. I've been able to mask ventilate. Yes. Uh, I have tried to intubate, and it's been unsuccessful. One times one. Right. Times one. So I would definitely do another attempt. I would probably either change the provider. So if maybe it was my resident who did it the first time, I might now take a turn. Or if it was me, I might try a different blade, um, or I might try a different approach. For example, if I used a Miller blade straight down the middle, I might try a paraglossal approach with a Miller blade, but I would do another attempt at intubation. So I will tell you in test philosophy that if you can answer the question in your head before looking at the answer choices about 95 to 98% of the time, that is the correct answer. And you actually got it correct and that the answer here is repeat attempted intubation. But I'm going to give you the answers that they gave us. So A, administration of additional muscle relaxant. B is repeat attempted intubation. C is fiber optic intubation. D is retrograde intubation. And E, there it is again, is that cricothyroidotomy, right? So this is walking you down a difficult airway algorithm, but we're very early up in it and we're not in the can't mask, can't intubate stage of things. We're in the, I can mask this person successfully. So we did talk about the correct answer, which is repeat the attempt at intubation. But the other ones, administration of additional muscle relaxant, they don't give you any clues as to that being the correct answer. They're not saying that the patient is in laryngospasm or you're hearing strider or they're coughing on attempt, right? There really has to be something guiding you in that direction because we're assuming if you can mass ventilate them that they're probably adequately paralyzed or under a general deep enough general anesthesia. So a fiber optic, you could, but it, again, in the ABA difficult airway algorithm, you're not quite there yet because you can mass just fine. A retrograde is like way out there. Uh, <laughs> like that's way out there in any scenario. It's kind of like the throwaway answer. And then the cricothyroidotomy, again, that isn't the difficult airway algorithm. And if you're not remembering it, I could see how it would be a good distractor. But again, it's kind of one of these topics that people don't know super well. So they're going to get distracted by that answer. Yep. Fantastic. All right. That's really helpful. All right. Should we do one last question? Yeah. I've got one last question here. So this is during induction of general anesthesia in a patient with a supraglottic tumor. Kind of, you brought this up before. Both intubation and subsequent ventilation via face mask are impossible. So now we're down this difficult airway algorithm. Like can't mask, can't intubate. A cricothyroidotomy is performed with a 16-gauge intravenous catheter. Which of the following statements is true? So again, in these scenarios and these type of questions, you can't answer it in your head. You can in your head kind of go through what you you know about jet ventilation, and I will be very honest, I don't know a lot. And I actually, if I was doing these, I probably would not have gotten this one correct. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually go down the line with Jed and have you say if you think it's true or false. So A, application of pressures greater than 35 centimeters of water to the catheter will increase the risk for pulmonary barotrauma. Yeah, so I'll say I also don't have a lot of experience with this, but... Um... I think that we often are using high pressures, uh, and so it's not the administration of high pressure. It's how long you administer it for. So I think you probably are going to have to do that. So I think that's unlikely to be true. Yeah. That's that's false, and that's, you got it for the right answer. In order to get pressure through that catheter, you have to use high pressure. And in fact, that flush valve will bypass the low-pressure side of the machine and get you right to the high-pressure side. So you're looking at... 50, 5, 0 PSI through that catheter. It's the only way to get oxygen through. So yep. you're going to have to use the higher pressures. So B is a PaCO2 can be maintained at a normal level using a standard circle system attached to the catheter. 
Right. So again, uh, I'm going to say it's unlikely that that's true because you're not going to be able to ventilate as effectively through that little catheter in the cricothyroid membrane as you can through an ET tube. Right. And a circle system is not going to be able to generate enough pressure because now you're on the low pressure side of the machine, which I think at the highest is 1, 5, 15 PSI. Right. So it's just not going to be adequate. So then C, PaO2 greater than 100 millimeters of mercury can be maintained indefinitely using transtracheal jet ventilation with pure oxygen through the catheter. Yeah, I think that's probably likely to be true. We know that you can oxygenate pretty effectively. You don't need to be able to ventilate in order to be able to, to at least to be able to fully ventilate in order to be able to oxygenate. So even passive oxygenation can provide a, a decent amount of oxygen, certainly with 100% oxygen. This is active. If you can get that oxygen into the lungs, you're likely to be able to maintain a very adequate uh, PaO2. Yep, and you're correct. That is the correct answer. Uh, and I'll, I'll tell you, so I'll read D, and this was the one I was torn with, was that D is emergency surgical tracheostomy would have improved the likelihood of survival. And I was kind of torn on that one because I just don't know. Yeah. It sounds good, right. <laughs> but it's I don't not know the, the correct answer. I don't know the answer to that either. <laughs> and I think, you know, I don't know your experience is Jillian, but that it's it's – that's really kind of having to know the literature on things like emergency trach versus jet ventilation. It seems a little less likely that they'd be require you to know that. Right. And there are reasons these questions get retired. It's probably not the best question, but if you're using them as a way to learn, I think that's a, they're a fantastic resource. So, yeah. But I don't think you'll have to know that granularity. But I do think it's great to know that you can actually maintain 100 millimeters mercury of PaO2 indefinitely with transtracheal vet ventilation, which is what I learned today. Yeah. So then E is the presence of this tumor contraindicates jet ventilation via cricothyroidotomy. Right. So certainly, like we said before, a right. tumor overlying the space, you can't right. do it. So again, the absolute contraindications, according to Barish, are neonates, kids less than six, and laryngeal fractures. So a tumor does not mean you can't get into that space and jet ventilate. Right. So a tu- Oh, because this tumor was – where was this tumor? It's a superglottic tumor. So it's – Above right. where somewhere we're above be. it, right. yeah. Somewhere I think it. that that to me that makes it seem like it's in the glottis area as opposed right. to on the neck. So, yeah. I, what I I was thinking, if you had a tumor literally overlying the cricothyroid membrane, you would probably not be able to do transtracheal um, jet ventilation because you you wouldn't be able to get to the cricothyroid membrane. But certainly, a tumor that is not obscuring your ability to reach it would not be a contraindication. So just in summary, what you're probably most likely to see on a test about cricothyroid membrane will be the tail end of a difficult airway algorithm uh, with not so much granularity that you can't get to the correct answer. And a lot of the questions are going to be about laryngeal innervation and airway innervation, and it will be a big distractor answer. Yep. Great. So we'll do a whole nother keyword about the innervation of the airway and get into the specifics of, of all those questions. But this was just specifically the cricothyroid membrane. And Jillian, I think you covered it incredibly well. Thanks for doing that. No problem. All right. Let's do a second one. Um, and we'll see. I don't know if we'll always do two. Maybe we'll do one time. But we'll see. This is all new. And again, we audience, we want to hear from you as to what you uh, think and how useful this is. But let's do a second one since we're here. Let's, um, Jillian, I know you prepared to do propofol. So let's do that. That's a big keyword. Um, so let's see how high yield we can make it. What do you think they should know about propofol? All right. So propofol is interesting because that's a drug we use every single day, but it's surprisingly not heavily tested. Mm. Usually where you see propofol tested is they ask about mechanism of action or they'll ask about how it goes away 
like the redistribution effect of propofol. And the third one that you'll see is propofol infusion syndrome. So propofol infusion system was last tested in 2009, as far as I can tell, and the mechanism of action was tested in 2011. So it's a good topic to know because we use this drug like water (laughs) as anesthesiologists. Uh, So we'll quickly run through what I think are the high yield points and cover. So for all the different drugs, there's A through H on the subheadings. So we'll cover all the A through H subheadings. So I'm going to put Jed on the spot a little bit. Uh Uh-oh. Sorry, yeah. Uh, So mechanism of action of propofol. So propofol is a GABA agonist. Oh, you're good. Uh, I don't know how much detail you want <laughs> in your uh, question here. It's a GABA agonist, uh, and it acts by uh, through that mechanism and causes uh, a amnesia, anesthesia, uh, not a lot of analgesia, and then also, of course, uh, it is uh, causes some systemic vasodilation and a very. Small we'll get into the yeah. the side effects of it. So. Just so you guys know, sometimes on the board, they don't make it easy and write GABA. You'll see it as gamma aminobutyric acid. So it's good to know that that is actually GABA. And Jed said it correctly, that it exerts its primary sedative and hypnotic effects via interaction with the GABA receptor. Uh, The thought is that propofol and barbiturates, and we'll have a whole other keyword on barbiturates, actually decrease the rate of dissociation of GABA from its receptor. And that increases the duration of the GABA that's being activated in the opening of the chloride ion channel, which is a little bit different than the benzodiazepines. And the benzodiazepines, they know actually act on GABA-A specifically. And sometimes they will ask that, like the difference in GABA-A versus just GABA in general. And for the benzodiazepines, it's an increase in transmembrane chloride conductance and therefore a hyperpolarization of the postsynaptic cell membrane. So those are kind of the big difference between propofol and the barbiturates versus benzodiazepines, which you do see come up from time to time. Great. And this is the kind of thing that Absolutely could get asked, but is hard to remember, at least for me. Oh, yeah. Because it's just not so something that's nitty-gritty. Yeah. Right. The other one that you'll see is like the neuromuscular junction is they'll ask what subunit of the receptor is bound by acetylcholine. It's the alpha one. But I think it's ridiculous. Right. But there it is. It is now you know it. You'll yep. get it right. Yeah. So in terms of pharmacodynamics and pharmacokinetics, it's interesting. Barish says that the half-life of elimination is anywhere between 2 and 24 hours. Wow. And that just depends on which model you looking at, whether it's a two or three compartment model. But what question they ask the most is why is the duration of clinical effect of propofol much shorter than its actual elimination half-life? And that is due to... It's very widely distributed throughout the body. Right. It's redistribution. So you get the injection, it goes to your brain, it has the effect, and then it goes to like all your soft tissues, especially the fat compartment. It's very lipid-soluble. Right. So it wears off, quote unquote, wears off because it gets redistributed away from your GABA receptors. And that's the big question really that you do see. But once it's been redistributed to your fat, it slowly reabsorbs into the bloodstream. It's initially metabolized by the liver, and then the metabolites are eliminated by the kidneys. Interestingly enough, and I did not either know or remember this, is they actually think the lungs might contribute to some of the clearance of propofol. That's right. That's interesting. The... um I think this is also interesting, and, and we may be getting to this, but that the context-sensitive halftime increases over time. So if you're running a propofol infusion for 10 or 12 hours, you uh, are it is not going to be anywhere near as fast a wake-up as it would have been if you'd run that for half an hour or an hour. Right, because so much more now gets into the fat, and then right. you have the steady state going, yeah. So, Jed, do you remember the effects of propofol on cerebral... Metabolic, oh gosh, a CMRO2, which stands for? Yes, a cerebral, cerebral metabolic metab- rate of oxygen <laughs> consumption. Yeah. yeah, so the, um, yeah, absolutely. So, propofol is a pretty good drug for this. So, it 
both decreases uh, CMRO2 and somewhat decreases cerebral blood flow. And so you actually get a decrease in intracranial pressure, which is nice if you're doing a intracranial surgery, uh, but also the brain needs less blood. And so you're not actually causing any harm. Right. And in a large dose, what can propofol do to the systemic arterial blood pressure? Well, it certainly can decrease it. And we see that all the time when we give an induction dose. Which will have what effect on the cerebral perfusion pressure? So if you're decreasing your systemic pressure, you're going to decrease your perfusion pressure as well. So you do have to be aware in some scenarios that propofol may not be the best induction agent. Absolutely. Uh, What effect does it have on the respiratory system? So propofol will cause apnea with high doses, which we, of course, see and give so for that reason. what would you consider a high dose? Well, that's interesting. Uh, I think that uh, there may well be a cutoff. I think that the doses that we give for induction, as you and I know well, are usually somewhere, depending on the patient and their comorbidities and their age, in the one to two milligrams per kilogram dose, and that certainly will cause apnea. So it, according to Barish, the induction dose is 1.5 to 2.5 milligrams per kilogram, but they said that apnea only occurs in 25 to 35% of patients after an induction dose. And in my clinical experience, I would have guessed much higher. So I was kind of surprised by those numbers. And I Maybe wonder, I overdosed it. Yeah, well, that's interesting. And I wonder if part of that is we often aren't only giving propofol, right? So we've given some, maybe some fentanyl, oh, maybe some point, Percet. Right. Though I will say I rarely do. I actually often will give Esmolol instead of, of fentanyl um, with my propofol to blunt the sympathetic response to intubation and uh, rarely give Versed, especially to older people. So I often am giving just the propofol and maybe some lidocaine and Esmolol, and like you said, I would say 100%. Right, 25 to 35%. I was really surprised by that. But uh, what about uh, what happens when you give propofol? What is the body's response to hypoxia and hypercarbia? So you tell me if I'm wrong, Jillian, but I'm pretty sure that it decreases the response to both hypoxia and hypercarbia. That's correct. And uh, it has more cardiovascular depressant effects than thiopental, which I, again, thought it was the other way around. So it was fun to kind of reread Barish and learn about what a myocardial depression it can be. And I think we forget about it because we give it all the time, but it's not a great drug to give him patients with heart failure, sepsis, for that reason. Interesting. Yeah. The other big thing they talk about in Bearish is its anti-emetic properties. No one really knows why. And it's interesting because the last sentence says it might just be because it makes you feel a little bit better, a little happier. And that might be why it has anti-emetic effects. So we do commonly use it for that end goal, either as Tiva or in the PACU. And then propofol infusion syndrome, which I have to say I've only seen one time as an intern. I know you're an intensivist. Do you see that? Is that still an issue? It is something we talk about, I, uh, and I have seen it in real life. Uh, it's pretty devastating when it happens. It is uh, What we know about it is that it's when it happens, it's much more likely to happen in high doses. So we think of it as greater than 70 mics per kilo per minute and for longer periods of time, so for at least three or four hours, if not into many hours and days. That's I think we – and I don't know that actually if the incidence has decreased. I think we, we hear about it less at least here because we don't do those things. So we right. don't use high-dose right. propofol in the ICU for long periods of time, uh, and we're very cognizant of it. We send lactate, CK, and triglycerides in people who are on propofol even at low dose. Right. And uh, on a, a testing scenario, they're going to ask about the triad of things you're looking for. So what are the three things you're looking for? So you get profound metabolic acidosis, cardiac arrhythmias and instability, and, uh, and rhabdo, an ass- and rhabdomyolysis. rhabdomyolysis. So yeah. if you're looking at it from a testing scenario, those are the three things that they're looking 
for you to answer correctly on right. the exam. So the rhabdo, the, the uh, myocardial failure, and metabolic acidosis. Yeah. So metabolic acidosis, rhabdomyolysis, and then um, uh, arrhythmias or myocardial right. uh, yeah. decompensation. Then the other question I see them ask a lot is Propofol's effect on neuromonitoring, especially SSEPs and MEPs. Really, it's a great drug to use in cases where you're doing neuromonitoring because once you hit a steady state, it shouldn't really affect it. They're kind of calibrating their monitors to you where it makes a difference if you give a big bolus of it and then it actually decreases the amplitude and increases the latency. So it's important to have a conversation with the colleague who's doing your neuromonitoring and say, hey, I'm going to give some propofol now. Otherwise, they might get kind of freaked out when they like decrease signals. Right. Yeah. And you want to, and, and I, you know, uh, have had the neuromonitoring uh, folks will say, you know, you're actually in burst suppression. You can back off on your propofol drip. Um, and so that's good to know too. You, you often uh, don't need to have the doses that we sometimes run. And I've never seen this as an actual test question, but it is part of the keywords that they want you to know, which is contraindications. So just to give the quick list, soya lecithin, which I I don't ever ask, do you have a soy lecithin allergy? Because I'm not sure people know. Some people still ask about eggs. I don't think that's still the same concern that it used to be. They've changed the formulation. So I don't think that egg allergy is the contraindication that it once was. But textbooks always lag a few years behind. So you still see that in the textbook. Sepsis, severe cardiovascular disease, dehydration, heart failure, profound hypotension, and hypovolemia. Those are all relative to absolute right. contraindications. Right. Interesting. I mean, certainly... Uh, I, I think, rel- you know, relatively speaking, in sepsis, for example, we will frequently give propofol at least as a low-dose sedative in the ICU or um, if we have to intubate someone. I think the key is if you're going to do it, you want to be aware that that cardiovascular depressant effect is going to be significant. And so doing it along with some push-dose pressors or thinking about skipping the propofol and right. using something like yeah. ketamine or etomidate. So I pulled some old test questions here to go through really quickly. Most of them either give propofol in a list of other drugs, like which drug would you give in this scenario? So propofol is a very commonly listed drug. Uh, it will also talk about comparing propofol to other drugs, so propofol versus thiopental versus a benzodiazepine in a comparison way. They'll also ask about effects. Like we talked about, we went through all the different systems and the effects on that and the effects on MM, uh, MEPs and SSEPs. Yeah. And the last one would be, uh, well, it's effects like on the vascular system. So you're called to anesthetize a patient who needs an emergency pericardial window for a large pericardial fusion. Which of the following drugs is most appropriate for initiation of anesthesia? And I want all of you to stop and in your head answer this question. Yell it out because you should. Well, you shouldn't. Not if you're CA1, you're just starting this. But most of us know that in that scenario, ketamine is probably the drug of choice, right? right. And but- you could even get there by first asking yourself, what do I want to make sure I don't do in a patient with tamponade or pericardial right. fusion, right? I don't want to slow their heart rate. If, the, if that's all you can think of, I don't want to slow their heart rate, right? I want it to be fast. Then you're going to think, all right, well, what induction agent might cause some increase in heart rate? That's what I'm looking for. Right. So the other options were alfentanil, which can cause bradycardia, midazolam, which probably wouldn't be enough of an anesthetic, propofol and thiopental. And propofol and thiopental are kind of in the same category in terms of uh, – Myocardial depressants right. are not the best drug there. Uh, so here's another question. Compared with an induction dose of thiopental and an induction dose of propofol, propofol produces A, better maintenance of cerebral perfusion pressure, B, greater inhibition of glucocorticoid production, C, higher incidence of myoclonus, D, less severe hypotension, and E, less severe respiratory depression. So it seems to me like both of those are going to cause uh, kind of significant and more or less equivalent respiratory depression, hypotension, 
Um, so probably, and again, you'd only know this if you had seen it or specifically read about it, but propofol can, can actually cause significant myoclonus. Right. And when you see it, it's really significant. It doesn't happen that often. When it does it, it's quite profound. Yeah. And it does happen more frequently than thiopental. I will have to say in the past few years, they have been phasing out questions about the barbiturates just because yeah. we don't use them so often, but that's an example of how they're comparing it to another drug. Right. Uh, so next question is, which of the following is a known effect of propofol? A, it decreases amplitude of somatosensory evoked potentials. B, induction of malignant her- hyperthermia. C, inhibition of cytochrome P450. D, initiation of porphyra. And E, suppression of adrenal cortical function. Right. So I think that A has got to be the answer there, decrease well, the amplitude. Well, we talked about that. And right. that's a really common test question is its effect on SSEPs and MEPs. Right. But the suppression of adrenal cortical function is what drug? So that's atomidate. That's atomidate. Initiation of porphyra? So a variety of drugs right. do that. I think the important thing to know there is that propofol does not. Right. Exactly. That, right. And the same thing with malignant hyperthermia. It's the volatile anesthetics and succinylcholine. Right. Definitely not propofol. And there are a fair number of drugs that will inhibit cytochrome P450, but that's propofol is not one of them. Right. Okay. So last one. We have time for one Let's last do one. one okay. Seventy-five-year-old woman with significant carotid artery stenosis is scheduled for general anesthesia for repair of a fractured hip. Which of the following is the greatest disadvantage of using propofol as an induction agent in this patient? Right. So super significant to know she's got significant coronary artery. Sorry, carotid artery stenosis. She is really relying on her uh, perfusion pressure um, to perfuse her brain. So uh, without looking at the answer choices, I'm going to guess that it's going to have something to do with dropping her SVR. Right. And again, and I'm going to say this again and again in these keyword podcasts, it's really important to try and answer the question before you look at the questions. It will help prevent you from getting distracted and will save you time. You pick the question, the right answer, and you move on, and you don't even have to read the other ones. But yeah, you, you, uh, the greatest disadvantage of propofol is that it will decrease your arterial blood pressure. So you can still give it, but you need to offset that with another drug like phenylephrine. Right. Um, so the other ones that they list here are pain during IV injection, which does happen. It happens fairly frequently. If you read Barish, they actually give you a whole list of ways to mitigate this problem, but it's not our biggest concern in this patient. We can get through that. Prolonged apnea after induction, while that's never what you want, if you've done a good preoxygenation, you do have some time there, and you can always right. mass ventilate, and there are other things there. Um, I think right in this question with the artery, carotid artery stenosis, they're really talking about blood pressure. Prolonged awakening, I mean... We've all gone to the ICU and debated. <laughs> like right. it happens, it happens. Right. Right? And then prolonged elimination half life, it should have no effect. Like right. And the bolus dose with intubation is not going to prolong your awakening any more than right. You know, exactly. Uh, yeah. So I think what they're getting at there is right. a long infusion. Right. So just to sum up for propofol, probably the way you'll see it on a test is the effects on different systems such as cardiovascular cardiovascular and respiratory systems, and then you'll see the redistribution and metabolism of propofol. That's a big question, and then the effects on neuro monitoring. Awesome. Jillian, this was great. So we spent about, uh, you know, uh, 15 minutes per keyword. So we may do a little more, a little less, but uh, let us know what you thought. If this was useful, then um, we can keep going and maybe eventually over time we'll make it through that whole packet of keywords. There are a lot of them, uh, but they are what the ABA uses to come up with their test questions. So probably really useful and high yield. Jillian, thanks so much for coming on the show. No problem. Thank you. All right. Hopefully that was useful. Let us know. Go to ACRAC.com. Leave a comment. Everyone can learn from what you have to say. Maybe you have something to add about propofol or about the cricothyroid membrane. Let us know. 
Of course, you can also see all the episodes at ACRAC.com, and you can leave a comment on any of them. Please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. If you're a fan of the show, it really helps others find the show. You can also, if you're interested, support the making of the show by going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show, even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge. It makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make a donation by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC. Thank you so much to those who are already patrons or have already made donations. Big thank you to Brian Park for the outlines he makes for some of the shows. And, of course, our original ACRAC music is by Dennis Quo. He is fantastic. Check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Jillian Isaac, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.